This episode is brought to you by the Copywriter Underground, the place to find more than 20 templates, dozens of presentations on topics like copywriting and marketing your business, a community of successful writers who share ideas and leads, and the Copywriter Club newsletter mailed directly to your home every month. Learn more at thecopywriterunderground.com. What if you could hang out with seriously talented copywriters and other experts, ask them about their successes and failures, their work processes, and their habits, then steal an idea or two to inspire your own work? That's what Kira and I do every week at the Copywriter Club podcast. You're invited to join the club for episode 195 as we chat with marketing specialist and public speaker, Steph Greaser, about growth marketing and what copywriters need to know to help their clients grow, Shine Bootcamp and what you need to know to land a speaking gig, the lessons she's learned after co-founding two big events, how she looks at and solves business problems, and her biggest career struggle. Welcome, Steph. Hey, Steph. Hi. Hi. <laughs> hello, hello. Hi. Hello. It's great to have you here. Last time I saw you was at Shine Bootcamp in Toronto last September. And so it's such a pleasure to have you here so we can dig into everything that you're doing. I am so excited to be here and excited to dig in. All right. So why don't we start with your story? How did you end up as a growth marketer, founder of Call to Action Conference, and co-founder of Shine Bootcamp? How did you get into all of it? Yeah, that's a really, really great question. So when I was, I'll go way back when I was kind of graduating university, I had worked internships in industries that were established for decades and really, really big companies. Like I'm talking some of the big, biggest in the world, like ExxonMobil. And I kind of 380, not 360, because that would end me. That would mean I was right back where I where I started. But no, I 180, and I decided that I really just wanted to get on the ground floor of a growing startup, and that landed me at a little software company at the time called Unbounce, and I started there as um, their second marketer, who was really primarily in charge of our community and our blog. And so that kind of looked at like a bunch of things, but essentially working with guest bloggers um, and, and then also cultivating community over social media. But for the most part, it was very digital, like software is very digital and we were just, it was a very digital play. And I remember about one year in, and I remember this so vividly, I went out to lunch. It was this tiny Lebanese restaurant. It was a, in a basement with our CEO, Rick. And we sat there and I pitched him on the idea of taking this community and this content that we've cultivated and turning it into like an event and going IRL, so to say. And he, you know, we were a software company and everything is so distant when you are a software company. And, and I felt like an in-person event or in-person events, plural, or conference could really help strengthen the brand, give us, you know, a lot of 
great industry relationships, but also it was just an extension of our content because we had such a great blog at the time. It was industry, like it was well known in the industry and it was just taking the, the content on the blog and basically pulling it into another medium. So Rick took the bait and I started really MVP and started off with a bunch of little meetups. And then as those meetups were successful, we started our first conference. And the first conference was Call to Action Conference. It was 300 people. And I remember, you know, I was so heads down creating this conference that when I sat and watched the conference, when it was all kind of said and done, I saw that there was two women up on stage and there was about eight dudes. And that was because I was relying heavily on the network of the six co-founders of Unbounce, all who of which are and were six white men. And, you know, that didn't really sit well with me. And so, you know, year after year, we got better. We brought more women in, but then also just other diverse voices. And I also had this big feeling that we needed to bring in people that weren't quote unquote speakers. Like they wouldn't self-identify as speakers, but they were really smart. They had something to teach. And if you gave them that spot at the conference, they were going to like step up to the plate and then deliver. And what I call that is like the underground or the underdog speaker or the up and coming speaker. And I really truly believe that if you, you know, of course you want the big names, but if you sprinkle your conference with, with speakers that aren't well known, but that are up and coming, that has something great to share, your conference will be better for it. And that's, that's actually how Shine Bootcamp started. So I grew that conference from 300 to over a thousand. And I actually grew a team of people that that put on the conference, uh, as well. And then the one year I raised my hand and I was like, I think I have, you know, it's funny. I had so many people knocking on my door asking me like, Oh, you know, how did you sell tickets? How did you do this conference thing? And how did you even market it? And how did you get people to show up? And it was, they had so many questions about, you know, the event and how I built CTA conf And so after like the 20th coffee date, I was like, I think I have something to speak about. Like, I think, I think I could speak. So I raised my hand and I spoke at the conference that I created, but I realized that being a subject matter expert is really different than being, being a speaker. Uh, it's just a different skill set. There's little nuances. So I remember I got help. I got coaching uh, because I was going up on stage with industry heavy hitters and I really didn't want to fall flat on my face. Also, this was the conference that my entire company was you know, at. That's scary in, its, in, of, in of itself. I think sometimes the scariest thing about presenting is presenting to people that know you and then you have to go back to the office on Monday and they'll they'll see you again. So I just remember being like, what have I done? Like I just signed up for this and now I'm part of the speaker lineup, but I am in no way, shape or form ready. So I ended up getting coaching and I remember, I remember this so clearly after my first dry run, Ollie Gardner, who was my my coach, said to me, I, I remember asking him the question, so do you think I'm I'm good enough to speak on stage? And he said, oh, like, 
Not yet, but you will be. <laughs> and it was it was really, really awesome because I, I basically took that and just built upon it. And that's basically kind of the the earliest forms of what Shine was. So essentially, fast forward the next year, people asked me at the company, oh, are you going to speak again? And I was like, no, I'm not going to speak again. But it kind of clicked in my head that we should have this open speaking slot. Um, Hey, let's have this open speaking slot for people internally like me to raise their hands. They'll have to pitch and then we'll take one of them. And the first year, I remember all four people who pitched to speak were all women. And at that time, there was two people who spoke on behalf of the company, and they were two men. And I was like, this is awesome. We are giving people a shot to get up on stage and share their knowledge. Anyways, that speaker behind me, um, she went up on stage and absolutely killed it. Uh, she got invited to speak at like tens of conflict, like 10 like I think 10 conferences right after CTA comp, um, that year. And then we wrote about this and a big lengthy blog post, myself and Amy Wood, who's now one of the co-founders of shine. We wrote about this whole journey about how, you know, conference organizers, it's an excuse to not have diverse uh, speaking lineups and what you can do. Uh, and it hit a chord because at that time it was kind of when the me too movement was heating up, it was very timely and it, there were so many comments, the, the post was shared so many, so many good conversations came out of it. Um, but what we realized was we didn't want to just be, you know, saying stuff about it. We wanted to do something about it. So that's where Shine Bootcamp kind of happened and created. So that's kind of my story, um, kind of what has led me to this very point. So yeah. Love it. So I've written down about eight different questions that I want to ask about events and you know the diversity thing, your coaching so much. But before we get to all of that, I do want to ask a question that came to me just as I was listening to you start your story when you started talking about being hired as a marketer. And I know you also use the term growth marketer in you know some of the things where you, on your website where you talk about yourself. What is the difference between a marketer and a growth marketer? What does a growth marketer do that makes them you know something special? Yeah. And I think I say I'm part growth marketer and part brand marketer because I think sometimes when you're you swing on the side of growth marketer, it almost becomes too much acquisition focused and you don't even think holistically about the business. And it's all about like hitting the numbers, hitting your CAC, hitting your LTV, um, and almost taking some shortcuts. Um, but I do think all of that is really, really important, but I think it's a blended approach that makes you a great marketer. I mean, I was talking the other day to a friend who works at a meal kit delivery service. And we were chatting about this very thing about acquisition. And she, you know, her old boss or CMO was more of the growth marketer mindset where, for example, their influencer strategy was all about post the referral code. Just talk about fresh prep as a meal kit delivery service and then post the you know, make sure that they post the code and track it all the way through. And I talked about how you know, it was two years before I signed up for their delivery service. Two years. I heard about it from one event. I heard about it through a friend. 
Um, you know, I, I actually even tried one of their free meal kits, then it wasn't the right timing. And then finally I've signed up and now I've had, you know, I've been a customer three or four months, but like, I think that sometimes it's just us marketers. We want to make the path to acquisition so clean and tidy like they do this, they do that. And then they became a customer. And I think that that is actually so flawed. And I think you need this balanced approach of being a growth marketer and doing like a lot of like bottom, what you call bottom of the funnel tactics. Um, but then I also think that you need to build your brand. And we were even talking about that influencer strategy. And I was like, Hey, have you guys ever just told your influencers to talk about the why, like why fresh prep, why they like it? Is it the recipes? Is it the fact that they're local and they're not being shipped all the way from the East coast, which is totally bad for the carbon footprint? Like have your influencers ever talked about that? And she was like, no, we've only ever just this is, you know, I'm a fresh prep, I'm doing fresh prep and here's my code if you want it. So I think there's just this blended approach in marketing and you just can't look at it as linear. And I call myself a growth marketer, but honestly, I call myself half a growth marketer, half a brand marketer. Cause I think you need both. And I think at companies, people, even I see this, they get into this mindset where it's like one versus the other. And it's really, it's really both. <laughs> you need both. Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah, so I, I'd love to talk about you know CTA conference and how you've grown it over the years. You mentioned you know starting at three hundred people the first year, which to me is is a win in the first year, and then scaling it up from there. So there's a lot that you've done right around growing the team, building the community. Can you break it down, especially for anyone else who's hosting events? Like we're hosting events every year. What are some of the core ingredients or, you know, just areas you really need to focus on in order to have that type of growth every year and to build a strong community and and that reputation of the event, the industry event everyone wants to attend? Yeah, that's a really, really good question. So I think the two most essential things to your event, and I think event organizers can get carried away, myself included, with all the bells and whistles, but the two things you need to focus on the most is your content. And if it's valuable and helpful, and that could be in the form of a speaker speaking to an audience, it could be in the form of workshops, or it could even be at like with shine, we have coaches like one-on-one coaching and, you know, everybody goes in, you know, Kira, you know, this, you go off into a war room for a day and basically get your talk torn apart and then you have to build it back up. I think you just have to focus on the content and the value of that content first and foremost. And then I think with live events, you do have to think about kind of, I guess for me, it was always matching the venue and having a goal of how many people I wanted there. Just because if you walk into a conference hall, that's supposed to be like a thousand people and there's 300, the atmosphere, it just (laughs) doesn't feel right. Um, So I always really, you know, start small my first meetup, I was like, okay, we're going to have room for 50 people. And I was like, that's, you know, it's great. If we have room for 50 people and there's 50 people in the room and it feels like it's a great environment. Awesome. I remember we sent an invite out and 200 people signed up. So we need to get a new venue that matched that. Obviously with COVID and everything going on, that's less of a, less of a concern, 
But I would say you do want a certain amount of people. Like I I even think about Shine, for example, and we're at this space where we just want to focus on the quality of people. So we have an application program and not everybody gets in. And there's people that have applied to be part of our bootcamp three times and they got in on the third time. And I think it's just, I guess it's just a matter of A, your content and getting really, really clear on that and focusing on your programming. And then B, for live events, matching that with the venue for, for not live events. It's maybe just making cultivating that community and making sure that the people there are, are, are really good, are really like match who you want to like drive value for. Because the last thing you want is somebody to show up. And I remember this, people applied to shine and I was like, yeah, I think you're like applying a year, applying two years. You're not like, you're not quite there yet, or you're, you're looking for something else and we don't, we don't really deliver that. So anyways, yeah, that's what I would say in terms of some things I've learned. Um, I think that it's so easy to get carried away with all the event bells and whistles, like, oh my God, the food trucks or, or, or like, what are we having for catering or, um, or swag? And, and I have my whole philosophies on all of that. I just think that if you're really focusing on an event, focus on content and the value you're giving attendees and the information and knowledge first. So while we're talking about that content, I'm really curious what you look for in a speaker pitch. When somebody wants to speak at your events, what are the things that you're looking for in addition to diversity? Yeah, I look for, I mean, I think it really depends on the conference, but I mean, just take call to action conference for an example. I really looked for practitioners. I looked for people that had maybe written a really great blog post before on something that they, when they pitched me, they had a unique angle or something that, that was a little bit different that they would bring to the table. I got so many pitches from people that put no effort in, or it was a PR person applying on somebody else's behalf, or they would be like pitching somebody that was like a technical SEO speaker when that's like literally not what our conference was about whatsoever. And I think it's just like, if you put the time and effort into researching the conference, you are so much more likely to get through to that event organizer and I think that just pays off in Spain. I remember this one woman, Leanne, she's a copywriter, Leanna, Leanna Patch. And she pitched to speak and it was like, she attended the conference two years in a row. She knew what was, you know, what topics performed well. She like came with the pitch. She just like the pitch email was so tailored and it was like, yeah, of course you're going to speak. Like, you know what what our, our conference is all about. I think people think so short term too. It's like, Oh, I'm going to pitch to speak at a conference and like, okay, I didn't get in this year. It's like play the long game. Speaking's a career. You might not get the speaking gig this year at the conference, but why don't you show up and attend the event? Um, get to know the event organizer. I think that there's, there's just so much you can do. Also, I mean, it's funny. I'm, I'm building out shine in the background a little bit more than just the once or twice a year speaker bootcamp. And one of the things I want to do is actually interview event organizers. Cause I think they're a little behind the scenes and nobody knows who they are, who runs this event again and, and who's in charge of the speaker selection. And I want, I've been interviewing a couple and it's just like, who are you looking for in a speaker so that 
you know, if people want to apply to speak at X conference, they can hear from the event organizer exactly what they're looking for. And then they can go pitch them in a great way that resonates or self-select that they're probably not a good speaker. There's some conferences where you just might not be the best speaker for that conference. So if you pitch yourself, it's just probably going to be a no. So why don't you save yourself? I mean, I'm always one for pitching, but um, I also think there's like a little bit of like self-awareness of which conferences would be good for you and you'd be a good fit for. Does that make sense? Oh, totally. I love the advice to go to the conferences. You know, it's probably close to a third of our speakers, their second year and third year of our event were people who had been at the event the year before because you get an opportunity to meet them, to see what they're about, you know, to uh, get to know them. And I think it's a huge leg up to getting on the stage, you know, in a year or two. Totally. And I think, I mean, conference organizers want to see cues that you're maybe it's a blog post, maybe it's a podcast interview, maybe it's you videoing yourself, maybe it's a sample slide deck. I think all these little things, I I know at Shine, that's why we created the program as it is. So you have a video, so you have a slide deck, so you have like shots of you speaking, but like anything you can do to, to, to prove that you're, you would be a good fit for that lineup, like a little speaker reel that just goes so far, because if you don't see any of that, it's, can be really, really tough. Yeah. So I want to ask a question. This is maybe a selfish question from the organizer standpoint. And that is, how did you connect with sponsors and attract sponsors to your events? Yeah, this is an interesting one. I think, I think it's about finding the sponsor where they get a lot of value out of it. And it makes a lot of sense. So the best sponsorships have been where it's just like a a very seamless partnership. And I think that you, I'm just going to take an example and get tangible. So for example, with Shine, I felt like Wistia was such a good sponsor because one, we asked everybody to apply to Shine Bootcamp with a video and how could they record a video kind of, you know, for themselves, they could use Wistia's product Soapbox. So we put a little plug in for Soapbox. Hey, you don't have to use Soapbox, but use it if you want to apply. They're a sponsor. Then we had speaker videos. Speaker videos were great. Where could we host those videos? Oh, on the Wistia platform, their video hosting company. Oh, and Wistia really cares about diversity, equity, inclusion. Oh, that's awesome. Uh, Then they're also tied to Shine and our core mission, which is elevating voices that don't otherwise get heard. And they're tied to us from a DEI standpoint. So I just felt like that was the perfect trifecta. It was like, great, you know, here are all the reasons why you fit seamlessly into Shine. You know, we have Logitech. Logitech is a massive company and they sponsored not in dollars. It's not all about dollars. They sponsored by giving our shine participants a speaker, sorry, a speaker clicker, a remote. uh, It's called like the presentation spotlight remote or something, but it's like the best presentation remote. Kira, you have one. It's fancy. Yeah. It's very fancy. I love it. It's very fancy. It kind of looks, yeah, it's like gold or silver. They have really nice colors. But essentially, they gift that to all people that are going through our, our boot camp. And it's like such a great sponsorship for us. So I think it's just finding that. I think that's the sweet spot of it. It's like finding the people where it makes sense for their business. And it's not just this like stretch. 
I think there's, you know, another sponsorship example is like Charlene Kate events. She is an event consultant. She like puts on events and conferences for other companies if they don't have somebody in house. And so she partners with Shine because she's like, oh, this is a great opportunity for me to find out about up and coming speakers. Great. So I think the best sponsorships are the ones where you can really integrate it into into your event, but into like, it's just the, it's also the partnership in general, just, it just makes sense. Um, but yeah, that would be my, my advice there. That reminds me of when I sent my speaker application video for Shine using Wistia and I had just moved to Washington DC the day before. So I think I was surrounded by boxes in my video and didn't think I had a chance to actually get in. Um, and I did, and I know we'll talk a bit more about that experience in Shine. But before we move on to that, I'd love to hear more about your, what you were saying about being a subject matter expert and how that's different than being a speaker, because I think that's something that isn't always talked about. And um, I'm just curious to hear what that transformation looked like for you as you were working with your coach, with Ollie, and you were working through it. Like, What were some of the critical areas that you focused on together to take you and to help you transform into that speaker? Yeah, I think the thing is that you already know so much about the topic that you forget to break it down. Yeah. Um, Or you forget like some steps, like you're like, you got from A to C and you forgot the ABC. And it's so easy for you to say that. And you're in your own head and you're explaining it and you're thinking, well, duh, this is obvious. Like, obviously you do this. And then I realized like, oh, it's not obvious. Like I need to break it down even further. Like, I think that even with copywriting, there's things that you do that you don't even know why you do it. It's like, what? I don't, I just did that. I just pulled those words out. Like I, but there was a, there was actually a conscious decision. You just, you are so good at what you do that it's unconscious. And I think it's actually really tough to then transform that into something like tangible. I think it's just like a thing that people struggle with. I've seen it like every kind of every speaker journey, I've seen it multiple times now and it's the same thing. And I think that it's, it's so much easier when somebody else listens to your talk and coaches you and just says, wait a, wait a second, can you actually break it down further? Wait, I have another question. And so you almost end up teaching your coach what you mean, but then it pulls out your talk. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, it does. And I think that's even my experience from Shine working through my content was just, it was hard to figure out as a copywriter what I do when I work with clients because it's just part of my internal process. And so it forced me (laughs) to go in front of my peers in that room and to look at them. And they were confused half the time because they were like, how did we get here? What are we doing? So yeah, I think the coach can really help with that. Is, Is there anything else, even just as far as like, moving on a stage or, um, those other skills that help with the presentation that you worked on with Ollie? Yeah, I definitely think so. But I think people jump steps like they'll, I think you really need to focus on your content, content, content first. And then when it's really solid, then you work on the pauses or, and I'm, I'm notorious for a speaking too fast. I'm probably speaking too fast in this podcast. I also have this nervous tick. 
and I like smack my lips when I'm nervous on stage. It's so terrible. Everybody, <laughs> like every speaker has something, but I think, uh, again, I think it's just like knowing your content, but then working on those, those things afterwards. So it's almost like your deck is like, ready. It's, it's good. You're not changing the content part of it. Um, you're not like switching slides. You're not figuring out your, your flow, you know it. And then it, that is the moment when all of a sudden you add a joke or you add a dramatic pause or you're slowing down. I think, I think too many people like almost jump and think about delivery. And I think there's just like a lot you need to do to focus on the content and then you need to focus on delivery. So the best thing for delivery is just like videoing yourself. We do it at Shine. And then, you know, when you watch yourself, you're like cringing, but it's really good. You're like, oh, okay. But it makes you stop your bad habits quicker than if you didn't. So so I know you do this with Shine, but if you were uh, teaching a speaker or two, when would you recommend that they really need to connect with a coach? Hmm. That's a really good question. When you feel like you have something to share, when you're itching to get on that stage, I think the light bulb moment for me was, wow, I think I have something to share. I think that I have like some value to bring to the world. I think I have a story. And I think when you kind of, when that light bulb goes off, I think that's when you could go down the path of, of getting a coach. It doesn't have to be You've already spoken at five events or you polished your deck. I mean, honestly, though, say, in saying that, I think that even seasoned speakers that have spoken at like tons of conferences would like benefit from going through a process like Shine or like getting a coach because it just sharpens them, their skills. And especially if you're doing a new deck, uh, it's just really, really helpful. So I think a coach is kind of... It could be as early on as, oh, I have this idea and this thought of what I want to say. And then also somebody who's been on the quote unquote speaking circuit or who has spoken a lot, but just wants to sharpen, maybe it's a new talk or maybe they want to sharpen their skills. So I think, I think there's not a perfect place. I think getting a speaker coach, it can be valuable kind of early on or later on in your, in your speaking journey. Before we hit record, we were talking about how copywriting is such a big part of what you do as a growth marketer, and you have a lot of experience in that area. Can you talk a little bit about um, what it's like to work with other copywriters and what that collaboration process looks like, especially considering you've worked with in-house copywriters, you've worked with freelancers. What does it typically look like in both of those categories? Yeah. I love copywriting. I think copywriting and marketing are synonymous. I think to be a good marketer, you have to be a good copywriter. I don't identify as a copywriter, but it's because that's not my business. I'm not like, hey, I'm a copywriter. I'm, you know, you can book me. I'm, I'm very much a, a, a marketer, an entrepreneur, a maker. But I just copywriting is so core to business, to marketing, even to speaking. Like you have to write your speaker abstract. You have to write your bio. So I think in terms of uh, working with copywriters in that process, I think copywriting is a team sport. I think when you collaborate on copy, it only gets better. And that's why I think when you work in-house, it's so lovely. Um, I remember the early days at Unbalanced. We did, we would obsess over the title of a blog post and we would like, like 
I'd write something, Ollie would chime in, Gia would chime in, and we'd have this like Slack channel going and we would like build on each other's ideas. And I think it was so awesome. And I think sometimes you have the copywriter and that's their job. And it's almost like they write the copy and that's the final say. I think it's just so much better as a team sport. So that's one thing about working in-house that's great. I find that obviously when you are hiring a copywriter, there's a little bit less collaboration. I mean, you kind of assign them something and they deliver that. And maybe there's a little bit of collaboration, but it can be a little bit different. And I wonder, I, I, I genuinely wonder how we can bring that kind of collaboration back. Maybe you have to be a marketer or somebody that loves copywriting and then hires a copywriter. But yeah, it's usually, it's usually you hire a copywriter, they give you whatever it is that you kind of um, assigned or the deliverable, and then you might have feedback and then they might, you know, implement that feedback, but it feels less, it feels less collaborative. And I would say that's, that's That can be a challenge uh, probably for somebody who is a, a freelancer who maybe doesn't know the business as well. The little nuances, the words, like, like again, I was, on a, I was on a Twitter thread the other day and it was a little bit of a battle. Um, and I was like, I don't want to get in a Twitter battle, but I felt like, and he was like, well, I didn't really say that. I was like, but that's what it felt like. And I feel like they're with copy and copywriters, you probably know this, there's connotation and denotation. And there's like the literal meaning of something, but then there's like the, the feeling that you get from that. And I think that there's just so much, I don't know, work that goes into copy and all those little nuances. And I just, I just find it so great as a team sport. And I just wonder and I don't have the answer to this. Uh, it's just wh- how can freelancers uh, and in-house people be a bit more collaborative? Because the in-house person knows a lot more about the business. And I think that collaboration could be really key. Yeah, it's interesting. So aside from collaboration, are there places where working with copywriters goes wrong or where you look at it and think, uh, I wish the copywriters did more of this other thing so that the work would be better or my job would be easier? Yeah, I am. I mean, I've worked with, I'm just trying to think, I've worked with like a couple of freelancers this, over these past two years. And and before I was working primarily in-house with people. So the collaboration piece was easier. When I work with these freelancers, it's interesting because I think I'm in the camp of like really clear, concise, short, choppy sentences followed by long, maybe long sentences, but I'm really in the short, choppy sentences um, write how you speak kind of thing. And I think when you get a copywriter, that's a bit more long-winded. It can be tough. I know one of the tricks that I have used is just in copywriting in general is voice notes. So I'll go for a walk. I will like record myself talking about the subject and then I'll like shoot it over to a copywriter. I think getting to know the customer and like the words that the customer uses and doing the like Joanna Weeb method, which is very much like mining reviews, mining data, like getting customer testimonials and using those words. I think that there's always room for you to to do more of that, like more research before you write uh, because then the writing's easy. Yeah. Yeah. So those are some of the things that I would say that I maybe struggled with, with freelancers or would say that those were some of the things I did that would help freelancers and help me ultimately get a better end 
product or end result working with them. Yeah, that's kind of the ideal client, at least for me, is the client who will send those voice memos and I can ask a bunch of questions. They can record the voice memo and send it over. And then it makes my job as a copywriter so much easier to capture their voice and their thoughts and even their sense of humor too um, mm-hmm. from that, that voice note. Uh, so let's talk about growing a team and your leadership role on your teams. As I was checking out your testimonials on your site, a lot of the comments were about your leadership skills. And I feel like this is something that a lot of freelance copywriters stumble into as they reach success and they're building their team or maybe adding some VAs or maybe working with other subcontractors and other copywriters. And we just kind of jump into it blindly. Can you share a couple lessons you've learned about growing a team and stepping into that leadership role, but what to do, even maybe what not to do as you start to step into that new role in your business? Yeah, it's, it's so, it's so easy to jump to explaining how things are done. And I think I learned that asking questions is just key. It's just like asking questions about why somebody approached it that way or how come they did it. And it's genuinely out of curiosity, but to know what their thought process is and then maybe following up with like, Oh, okay. Like, would you mind if I tell you like where my thought process was at? And so it's more collaborative. Um, I think the biggest word for me, and I'm a big advocate of coaching, obviously with speaker coaching, but also when I started growing teams, I struggled. Like it wasn't easy because I felt like I knew how to do it. And I I just, I guess I, I struggled. So I actually got a leadership coach. Um, she was amazing. And in our sessions, you know, it was all about slowing down, asking my team questions and leading with curiosity. And curiosity was my main word that I wanted to work on and focus on. And when I, when I led with curiosity and when I asked more questions, it just, it was a game changer. I think it's probably easier said than done, but I think that really, really helped me grow and lead teams. Uh, yeah, that'd be my biggest, biggest piece of advice. So what other things have you struggled with in your careers? You've done some pretty amazing things, worked for some amazing companies, but where have you kind of had some failures? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, there's been a lot of failures. I mean, one is leading teams and fumbling with some of that. I know that it was like a year or two before I got a coach and really kind of slowed down and asked more questions. And sometimes you can be so set on your vision that you need to like take time to slow down uh, and bring other people along. Yeah. I mean, I would say that that is the, the biggest one simultaneously that comes up is like stepping into a more like a leadership role and, and really kind of owning that. And that's just like a very different thing. So yeah, I would say that was my biggest, my biggest struggle. The one that comes, comes up 
in my mind the the most. Can you dig into that before picture? You know, it's, I think it's it's really cool that you worked with a leadership coach. I think it's a good reminder for many of us that there are different types of coaches we can work with on these challenges. What did it look like beforehand, before you were leading with curiosity? What, what were some of those red flags for you where you're like, oh, this is not working. The way I'm approaching this is not working at all. What did that look like and feel like at that point? Yeah. So let me go through kind of what happened. So essentially I was like, you know what, it's just not, I feel like I'm not getting to where I want to go is the thought that I had. And I remember going on a walk with, you know, we, we'd done group coaching, but never individual coaching at, at the company. And I remember walking with Rick our CEO and he's like, have you ever thought of, have you ever thought of a coach? I mean, I have a coach. And I was like, no, am I allowed? Is that okay? And so I went and got a coach and what we did was this, she did a very, very intensive, um, leadership assessment. And before that, there was just things that I didn't know that I did. And it was like, was, I, I had a blinders on. So I think there was like 25 people who answered like a 30 to 40 minute survey about me. It was very intense. It was That's my, terrifying. Yeah, it was terrifying. It was my bosses or previous bosses. It was my, you know, direct reports or my team. It was my peers. It was people outside of the company. It was like this holistic view of Oof. who is staff as a person. And it was mapped out specifically on this. It was called like a compass. And, and then I also answered all the questions and it was super interesting because for example, there'd be like one element where it was like strategy. And it was like, I thought I was really good at this. My bosses or my like, you know, the people that I reported to thought I was really good at it. Their line was even higher than my line and my direct reports, it was lower. So clearly I was having a disconnect of sharing the vision and the strategy with them. I was like, I, you know, and, and that made total sense. And, we, and then we broke it down. It was like, what, wait, why Steph? Why are you, why is that? So, and it was like in my, in the meetings with direct reports, we didn't focus on that. I, I spent more time communicating the strategy to the people above me, not below me. And I, I hate saying above and below, but you know what I mean? It was like, I was, I spent so much time and I just didn't even realize I was doing it. So then I consciously changed that. Yeah. So I think there's those type of things. And I think it's just like, you don't even know what you don't even know. And I thought, I, th- I found that seeing all my, like how I saw myself, how my peers saw myself, like on, like basically charted out with data was very interesting. And then we could pinpoint it and dig in as to why. Because I think there's lots of things that people do that they don't even realize. Like, again, it comes back to the subject matter expert thing that we were talking about before. You don't even realize you do something until you like break it down. I think that's the same thing with leadership. You might not realize you're doing something that really annoys somebody. And then if you find that out and you break it down and then, and then you, you kind of move forward, it will make you become more a self-aware, but be able to like, you know, address that. So I can imagine that somebody listening to the podcast might be thinking to themselves, Hey, Steph has done some really cool things. And I think I might want to do something similar, maybe start a, an event or, you know, do some of the things that you've done. 
if you were advising them or maybe, you know, talking to Steph from five or 10 years ago, what would you, what advice would you give them so that they might get to where you are today? I feel like you need to figure out what lights you. I mean, I, I've never been like, oh, I've now done all these cool things. It's not like I ever approached it that way. It was because I wanted to solve a problem or because I had an idea. So I don't know. I, my advice is like, ask questions, fuel. Like I remember going out to coffees with so many people and just asking them questions, even about like events. I re- I've never, I never started a conference. I've never even done events before. And I just took out like, you know, five people to coffees or just asked what their, like their experience was like and what they would do and what they wouldn't do. And, and then I went from there and it was always fueled by like, Oh, I wanted to create, like create this cool thing or I wanted to solve this problem. I, I think if you start there, you're just going to end up in places that you wouldn't even expect. Like I didn't expect that I would run a speaker boot camp. It just kind of like, you start taking the path and then all of a sudden here we are. And it was because it's just like, Oh, I want to like create value for other people because this was my situation. I just, yeah, I guess that's how I'm approaching it. It's just like, it's not about, Oh, like, and you know, it's so funny. I think like, Oh yeah, I've gotten to a place in my career, but I have so much, so much more stuff I want to do. There's so many other people that I look up to and I think, Oh my God, I need to get to, to this place in business or, but I think it all just starts with like little baby steps. And it just starts with wanting to create value just for value's sake and not doing it for, for any, anybody else or for a job title, a title or for an award or an accolade. It's genuinely the value you want to create for other people. Maybe it's a maker mindset. Like, what do I want to make that would help other people? That's what, that's a question I would ask. As a follow-up to that, I would like to know how you shape your life and your, your non-working hours for this problem-solving approach to business and to life and the maker mindset. What, when you think about even your week ahead, you know, your, your weekends, your time, how do you look at it and approach it so you feel energized and excited about your work and you're not depleted and then you have some type of boundary too. Uh, I'm not really asking about the boundaries, but how do you shape your life? Right. I'm just thinking about the next week and I think about what are like the top two, maybe even one things that I want out of that week and what problem do I want to solve? And I don't try and take on too much I mean, this is a funny thing. Talk about struggles. I'll go back to that question. I think I have a problem saying no to things, but I do, I'm consciously trying to just, you know, if there was that one problem I would solve because then you pick up momentum. I find that sometimes people, like if you don't finish something or, you know, you have 10 things to do and then you don't do any of them or you do any of them half-ass, um, then you feel like your momentum slows down. I, I find momentum is big for me. So I try and just like capitalize on that. Like even a little small win, like, uh, you know, it's so funny. I'm, I'm, I'm creating this other thing, uh, and it's going to launch hopefully in June, maybe July, who knows. Uh, and it's slow going at first. Like sometimes starting things is like giving birth to something. It's just like, Oh, you got to push the boulder up the hill. But I just know that 
consistency and pushing that boulder and just small wins repeated over and over again, will you'll look back and be like, whoa, I got there. I love the book Atomic Habits by James Clear. It is literally the Bible to my life because I think I used to be and still struggle with this consistency. Um, I would sign up for a marathon and or a half marathon and, and train, 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 and then do the half marathon and then quit after. And it's just like that, you know, it, I have these huge swings and ebbs and flows and I'm just trying to get consistency and little wins and celebrate those little wins and get momentum. I feel like, um, those are kind of the things I'm trying to cultivate. It's like great habits, consistency over time that, that ultimately will give you momentum, but they could be very small wins. So you've mentioned, you think of yourself as a maker and that you're always looking for problems to solve. Do you have a process or even a framework that you use as you, uh, you know, encounter a problem and think through, okay, how am I going to solve this and come up with something that's going to work? Yeah. I mean, I think if you are in a maker mentality, there's like no short, there'll be something that annoys you and you're like, Oh, this is so annoying. Like I wish that this existed or you pick up on other people saying that it doesn't have to be just you. You're like, Oh really? That's an interesting, you have that problem. Let's dig into it. So I think there's, you know, that you probably, I probably have a ton of those moments. But then I think it's about choosing the problem that you want to tackle and actually doing it um, and choosing those very carefully because you could end up in the, oh my God, I'm solving like 10 problems. Like which one are you best to solve? Like for Shine, for example, I feel like I, you know, I would never identify even as a speaker myself. I, I could use help speaking, but I know that my path to speaking has what is what led to Shine being a successful boot camp, and I genuinely feel that solving the problem of bringing more diverse voices on stage and 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 kind of giving people that kind of training and experience, I know that I can solve that problem. So it's almost you know people talk about, and I just read an article the other day. This isn't new, but it's product market fit. It's it's also about product founder fit, like. Do you, are your skills, talents, and experience, um, do they line up with the problem you're solving? Yeah. So I think, I think you need to think about that. I also think you need to think about the industry you want to be in. Like there's some things, you know, I, I, two years ago I traveled in India and my thing every day was to write business ideas down, like problems to solve, just like spitball ideas. And there is one idea that I told like everybody. I was like, Oh, I want to create this dips restaurant because I really love dips, like dips, like pizza and dips or chicken wings and dips. Like I thought there was a really cool concept there, but I also know I don't want to be in the restaurant industry. Like there's no way I was going to go chase after that. I loved the idea of it, but do I want to be in that day to day? Absolutely not. I mean, yeah. And even talking to restaurant owners, it's like the, the margins are terrible, like things like that. It's also choosing the business that, that is, you know, right for you. And also you, you know, again, your skills, talents, and experience line up with. So I think when you're thinking about making something and not just an idea, but actually like putting pen to paper and executing on it, it's like, what are, you know, think about some of those filters. 
now I'm I'm hungry for some dips. I want some dips right now. And some chicken wings. That'll be good too. Yeah. yeah. Oh my god, I need some lunch. Uh, so we've talked a lot about Shine Boot Camp, I and mean, as you mentioned, I'm an alumni member. I think for me, it was applying to Shine Boot Camp in 2019 was one of the best moves I made, um, especially for my personal brand. So can you just talk through? You know, we've talked around it, but like, what do we actually do at the boot camp? And then, what is next for it? You mentioned that you're you're adding to it and and growing it in other ways. So, can you talk about that? And even if for someone who's interested in applying, what they should look out for if there's another cohort anytime soon? Yeah, such good questions. I think that first question you should you could probably answer it just as well as I could. Um, so feel free to chime in. Um, but essentially with, with shine, uh, there's a couple of things. One, building a good conference deck or like a speaker deck does, it does not happen in two or three days. In reality, it happens in five weeks. So really when you apply to shine, you should be prepared to put in the work of six to eight hours a week. You need to think about little things like the title of your talk, the speaker abstract, your bio, like even your conference bio. Um, Then you need to think about like all the content that goes into it, like what you're, you know, what you're going to talk about, but then what examples you're going to include in your, your slide deck or your, you know, your presentation, what examples, what stories, how they all weave together. It takes time. It takes good speakers time to, to build a conference deck. So that's one thing. Then in terms of what actually happens is that you get coaching, you show up with a V1 version of your deck, and then you get a speaker coach and they're very intimate and it's designed intimately on person. So on purpose, so that you can get that one-on-one feedback, um, and you basically present. Um, you get a video taken of you in, in the presentation rooms, um, and then you kind of hear feedback from your coach and from your, like, mini group. And then you kind of people, – people have said this. It's like getting your talk totally ripped apart, and then you have to build it back up in, like, a day, and it's very intense. Um, that's kind of what people have described. Is that accurate? with what you experienced? It's, it's, it's definitely accurate. Um, you have, yeah, your group is poking holes in your presentation and, um, which is really helpful. But the great thing is you're away. I was in Toronto for the whole weekend. So that's all I was doing. And I was able to put a lot of time into it, which was another perk because I have a lot of distract, a lot of distractions at home. So it was also nice just to be there in this, this bubble and just focus on one thing. And I was, I was just amazed at what we could accomplish over a weekend. Um, it was just what everybody accomplished over a weekend. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So that's, that, that is definitely a a part of shine in terms of, um, there's one other thing that I think is really important is that on the Sunday, there's a speaker showcase. So there's a deadline, like you have a deadline, (laughs) you have to speak, like you can't just be like, Oh yeah, I worked on my deck. It's like, no, you have, you have to go speak. And it's getting videoed and you're getting headshots and it feels like a mini conference. So there's a little bit of pressure, but I feel like it's a good kind of pressure because in my experience, I've coached people and I swear their talks improve just 
by having that conference experience, like that mock conference speaker showcase experience tenfold. It's like, it's hilarious. And everybody kind of elevates their, their talks. It's almost like game time, right? It's, it's like, wow, we've just practiced, 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 and now it's game time. And then you almost elevate yourself during the game. You do, you go there, you elevate, you get better. So that's kind of one important aspect of it. Uh, Kira, you asked me like, what's next for Shine? So there's a couple exciting things. One, well, COVID happened and we had four boot camps lined up for the year. We're about to press go on our website and then the world of in-person events, even small workshops. Like again, there's not too many people that come to shine. It's only like a group of 30, but it stopped. And a lot of people fly into whatever location. So we, we obviously didn't launch, you know, this too shall pass. Hopefully in a year or two, we're, we're running in terms of our in-person signature boot camps. But the thing is, you can go through Shine and we're putting together a virtual program, but it's going to be really different than what you did at Kira. It's going to be much more like you're going to come in. It's going to be five weeks. It's going to be much more like we had homework assignments and, but really it's going to be a lot more collaborative and weekly workshops. You're going to have your uh, coach And you're going to have your coach coach you along those five weeks or six weeks. I don't know if it's going to be a five week or six week program yet, but it's going to be like five or six weeks. But then at the very end, we are actually going to have a virtual conference and we're going to market you. So for example, week one, your homework and your task is going to be writing an awesome speaker bio figuring out what you're talking about and writing a speaker talk title and abstract. You're going to submit that to us and we're going to create an amazing, basically a conference website and we're going to start marketing you. So people at the end of this are actually going to be watching and it's going to be, it's going to be a conference. It's going to be an online conference. It's going to be different than our speaker showcases, but I don't know, maybe 200 people show up, maybe only 18 people, maybe it's a thousand, but we're going to, create that because because it's it's really different speaking in person obviously than speaking online you're you know you're speaking from the comfort of your home but I want to create the feeling that this is a conference so that's one thing we're going to do um there's still going to be tons of coaching um and it's going to be even more of a community in a feel and it's going to feel like you know a five-week accelerator program so that's going to be launching TBD on dates. And then the other thing that we're doing is um, launching a little bit of a, a subscription. So I talk to so many people who are speakers, who have great tips. Then I speak to lots of conference organi- organizers about what they're looking for. So it's going to be just a bunch of kind of workshops, podcast episodes, just materials for anybody who wants to get into speaking and kind of learn more, but it's going to be like a monthly subscription kind of access some of that. But yeah, those are the, some of the things we're working on behind the scenes. So Steph, I can imagine a few people listening are thinking, that sounds cool. Where should they go to find out more about that or to connect with you? Yeah, that's a great question. I would say go to shinebootcamp.com. Just enter your email in the newsletter or follow us at Shine Bootcamp on Instagram, at Shine Bootcamp on Twitter. You can connect with me on Twitter, Instagram, 
LinkedIn, but yeah, at SM Greaser. Well, cool. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much, Steph, for jumping in here with us and sharing more about everything you've done and your career. And I'm just, I'm personally excited to see how this the new venture goes with Shine Bootcamp and hopefully participating in that too. So thank you so much for hanging out with us today. Thank you so much for having me. It was, it's been a lot of topics. I feel like we've covered a lot. <laughs> been a we, went, we went overtime. We went <laughs> overtime with you. There was a lot to cover. So thank you yeah. for hanging out a little bit longer than we had uh, originally scheduled. So yeah. we appreciate it. Love it. Awesome. Thanks. You've been listening to the Copywriter Club podcast with Kira Hug and Rob Marsh. Music for the show is a clip from Gravity by Whitest Boy Alive, available in iTunes. If you like what you've heard, you can help us spread the word by subscribing in iTunes and by leaving a review. For show notes, a full transcript, and links to our free Facebook community, visit thecopywriterclub.com. We'll see you next episode.